Hello, and welcome to The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage. During my career at The Economist, I've reported from all over the world, from Kampala to Tokyo and from Silicon Valley to Shenzhen. In each case, I went looking for clues in the present day about what the future might hold. Well, for this series, I'm going a step further. A vortex in the space-time continuum has enabled me to travel to the year 2042, or at least one possible 2042, to report directly from the future on four different topics. Food, health, education and climate technology. Once you've heard my report from the future, we'll return to the present day to talk about the chances of that particular scenario coming to pass and, where necessary, how we might avoid it. In this episode, we're considering the future of education. So sharpen your pencils and prepare to be transported to the year 2042. It's the start of another school day here in California, but it's an unusual day for the students at Lime Grove Middle School because today their school is switching to a new model of teaching that places less emphasis on teachers and more emphasis on technology. And one technology in particular, personalised learning assistants, or PLAs, powered by artificial intelligence. PLAs let pupils move at their own pace and adjust their teaching styles according to each pupil's needs. It's like having an expert, full-time tutor in every subject. PLAs are now widely used by children in wealthy families, Several studies have shown that PLAs produce better educational outcomes than traditional schooling, but not everyone can afford to use them, so the result is growing educational inequality between pupils educated either partly or wholly by PLAs and pupils in traditionally run schools. This school in Lime Grove is the testbed for a new approach that provides in-school access to PLA-based learning through a deal with Mentorial, one of the big PLA providers. If it works, this model could be rolled out to other schools in California, but it's proving hugely controversial. Isabella Coloz is the head of the local school board, which narrowly approved the plan, and after months of preparation, the rollout begins today. Isabella, how did all this start and how will it work? Well, the state of California is very worried about growing inequality in education, so it struck a deal with Mentorial. For the past few weeks, Mentorial have been installing the infrastructure in the school, and from today, students will start switching to PLA-based learning using headsets. So what happens to the teachers? Once we have transitioned to the new model, which will take two weeks, the teachers are unfortunately no longer needed, so... We have been negotiating with the teachers' unions about redeploying them at other schools for the duration of the trial or retraining them for new roles. With PLA-based learning, you do still need some support staff to maintain order, supervise lunch breaks, and so on. So we invited teachers to apply for those roles. And did many of them apply? We have been disappointed by the level of uptake. And how do the students feel about all of this? Uh, Some are excited about having access to this technology. (laughs) They think it's going to be like playing metagames all day. But uh, some are scared and don't like the idea of the human teacher going away. 
Mentorer says the system can adapt to different kinds of users, I, I mean students, just like a teacher can. The students can also customize their learning environment so that they feel comfortable. So uh, we'll see. Another controversial aspect of this scheme is the business model. So how exactly is all this being paid for? The state is paying Mentorial for its services, but uh, even after negotiating a bulk discount, the price was too high. So Mentorial proposed an uh, innovative approach, which is to include a strictly limited amount of advertising and product placement in the learning experience. There are safeguards around the kinds of advertisements, uh, I mean partner messages, that can be included in the learning experience. Advertisers, sorry, commercial partners also have the option to sponsor facilities in the school, for example, through naming rights to classrooms. I understand that local residents recently burnt the effigy of a robot in protest at being used as sort of educational guinea pigs. Do they have a point? We prefer to say that we are educational pioneers searching for a new way forward. Being a pioneer is not always easy, but by making a new path, we can maybe make things easier for others in the future. We have to try something. And we are trying this. Isabella Caloz, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. OK, I'm now back in the present day, and with me are Mark Johnson, our education correspondent, and Sal Khan, founder of Khan Academy, which provides educational videos and tools free online. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hello, thanks for having me. So, um, what did you think of my report from the future? Mark, what's your reaction? Well, I think the idea of a school turning into a giant internet cafe is uh, both pretty wacky and also frighteningly imaginable, uh, given the, the last couple of years of remote learning that we've all stumbled through. What do you think, Sal? I think there's pieces of what you're describing that are that are actually happening already <laughs> that um, are good, and then there's other pieces that... Uh, could be very bad, uh, but we'll see if they happen. OK, well, we're going to uh, try and separate the good from the bad right after this. We're focusing on the future of education, and in particular, a future in which artificial intelligence can provide personalised tuition. But not everyone can afford it. Mark, this idea of personalised teaching through AI, also known as adaptive learning, has been around since, what, the 1960s or something, hasn't it? How far has it actually got? Well, the answer is quite a long way. So we've had educational software, as you say, for a long time. Over the years, these products have moved on from being mostly libraries of content, you know, such as video lessons, to become you know, much more interactive, such that the content of the lessons they deliver and the level of challenge that they set can alter dynamically according to your progress. So AI is making these robo-tutors ever more sophisticated by allowing them to crunch heaps more data, you know, not just years of right and wrong answers, but you know, maybe even how long a learner spends pondering a particular problem you know, maybe how their mouse moves around a screen. Now, you're, you're probably most likely at the moment to encounter this kind of stuff in, in after-school tutoring centres of a sort that have been very popular in China and other parts of East Asia, or you'll find it sold as online subscriptions to parents who want kids to study in their free time. But increasingly, you find it used in mainstream schools, uh, particularly within maths lessons, 
And while there generally aren't schools that are now going without teachers, as in our scenario, there are schools, often small and experimental ones in places such as California, that find that making more use of tech has made it easier for them to reorganise learning in ways that are quite curious. Sal, very quickly, for people who aren't familiar with Khan Academy, what is it and how does it differ from traditional approaches to education? Well, Khan Academy has been made to be supportive of people in the traditional system. That's what, you know, we have 140 million registered users. Obviously, the great majority of them are in traditional schools or are traditional teachers. And so our goal is to provide video instruction, as much practice and feedback and tools for teachers to support them in traditional day-to-day lesson-aligned practice, let's call that, but then also allow them to start moving in the direction where students can start learning at their own pace. Or if the first time they did an assignment, they didn't get a full 100% on it, that they can still work on it and maybe even work on some prerequisites that were pre-grade level so that those gaps don't, don't persist. So the goal is meet the system where, they, where it is, but provide the tools and the nudges so that they can slowly move to a more personalized mastery world. Where does um, adaptive learning fit in with the the various tools that Khan Academy provides? Is it part of the mix? Yeah, I would say that's the core value proposition of Khan Academy is uh, obviously a lot of people view us as a place to just get, you know, point help. They look it up on the internet, on Google and whatever, and they find some of our practice or some of our videos. But most of our resources are behind what we've called personalized mastery learning for, you know, we've been working on this for, for 10, 12 years now. But it's really this just this idea that students should be able to finish any unfinished learning, that the main reason why a lot of students have struggled, especially in in topics like math, is that traditional model moves at a fixed pace. Even if you get a 70% on a test, that 30% gap never gets addressed. And then you have to keep building on that. And we know where that leads us. And in the US, for example, 65% of kids who go to college have to take remediation at the middle school level in math, which just shows you how how those gaps eventually accumulate. So this is where, you know, one teacher on their own without any technological help it's very hard to have 30 kids working on different things and with different gaps. But now, hey, are there ways that students can master concepts at their own pace? Teachers can be informed of where those students are and then be able to dig deeper with, with those students. So in a lot of ways, that story from 2042, I hope Khan Academy is a much more benign version, or I would say a more powerful version, but a, a benign socially version of what you, well, I think the company was mentorial or something like that. Um, but we think that there is value that can be created that way. Okay, so that's sort of a good um, aspect of this, that people can move at their own pace and can learn more efficiently and fill those gaps. What were the things that you were worried about from the report from the future? Was it, for example, the advertising? One of the reasons why I set up Khan Academy as a not-for-profit 13 years ago was because it it was obvious to me back then, I think it is still obvious to many people, even though they pretend not not to think about it, that when we're talking about people's education data, their education privacy, what you're doing with students, you're going to have a conflict if on one side you have a fiduciary to shareholders and you're trying to prop up a stock price, and on the other side, you're actually trying to drive learning outcomes and making sure you're doing right by students. And so that's the logic behind Khan Academy being a not-for-profit with a, a true bottom line of social impact. And so that helps, I think, give people comfort on things like data privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it also on equi- equitability, like we are out there to make sure that it is as accessible as possible to most people. That's one thing that I think the story probably would have wrong. If if there is a solution, and look, we already have efficacy studies that if kids put 60 minutes a week on Khan Academy, they're growing twice as much as their peers. So some of what you talked about for 2042, those efficacy studies already exist. 
But the difference is that these solutions are actually free or very close to free. And the real inertia around it, the reason why today, and you talk about some schools in California, I run one of them. We have a Khan Lab School. It's under our offices. My kids go to that school. At Khan Lab School, the kids are getting two grade levels of learning a year consistently. So some of what you're saying is already happening. But the reason why they're able to do it is because it really unlocks what can happen when the humans are getting together. Students are able to learn at their own pace, but the teacher is more equipped and and is able to do higher order interventions, is able to have one-on-one sessions with students while the other students continue to do work that is appropriate for them. And so the, the, the inequity, I don't think, is because of the cost of these solutions. These things are actually one of the cheapest things. That, they're cheaper than textbooks. Uh, I think the inequity is some of the inertia that exists in some of the larger, more complex school systems of moving to more of these models where students are able to learn at their own pace. So where does Khan Academy get its funding from then? So our budget, it's about $60 million a year, which i it's a lot of money, but I remind everyone it's a budget of a large high school in, in places like the U.S. About eight, nine million of that comes from about two or 300,000 people, small donors donating $20, $30 on average each. We have another, let's say on the order of about $10 million, and this comes from a combination of uh, we're the official practice for the SAT in the United States, the law school admissions test, the medical school admissions test. The nonprofits that run those tests actually pay us in order to provide free practice for people around the world who want to take those assessments. So that's a source of revenue. Everything we offer is free, uh, but school districts uh, in the last several years have said, hey, can you provide support? Can you provide training? Uh, Can you help integrate with our district systems? And so for $10 uh, per student per year, uh, we, we offer that. That's kind of our district offering. That's part of that $10 million. Uh, and the, the the rest of that, let's call it $30 million, it comes from a whole series of uh, foundations and philanthropists around the world. Mark, what has the experience of um, online learning during the pandemic taught us about all of this, about equality of access or inequality of access and what that means for um, for outcomes? Well, it's proven that um, tech is not very helpful if you don't have access to devices and also, of course, good internet connections. I mean, it's proven that even those things aren't very helpful if your teachers aren't knowledgeable and enthusiastic about using them in good ways. It's shown us that in bits of the world, access to mobile phones and other kit like that is not only limited by wealth, but it's limited by sex with with girls losing out. And I think the pandemic also showed us that tech doesn't help much if an economic shock means that youngsters have to spend more time working rather than studying whatever the medium of the study is. And I think the pandemic has shown us all of the other things that we need physical schools for. Well, I was going to ask about that. So I was, I was interested to hear, Sal, that you have this physical school downstairs from, from your office. So I, I wondered, you know, we're rethinking at the moment the, the point of offices in light of the pandemic and the light of greater use of technology. Do we need to do the same for schools? And what are the most important aspects of the physical part of schools? It's interesting. Uh, Khan Academy, we've officially gone office optional, but even as we went office optional, we're still maintaining an office. We want a cultural center for our organization. But we have talked about people who are interns, people who are straight out of college, it's their first job, it's really important for them to get context and to learn a lot of the intangibles that you don't necessarily explicitly learn in, in, a, in a workplace, but you need to be around other people. That ability to interact, to collaborate is essential. And I think people are surprised when they visit Con Lab School, you'll see kids talking to each other and talking to the teachers and collaborating as individual human beings much, much more at this school, which obviously has some underpinning foundations of how can we leverage technology in smart ways, you're having more human-to-human interaction, 
than you would at a traditional school where you oftentimes see kids in rows kind of looking at a teacher giving a lecture. Kids are a little bit more checked out, a little bit more passive. And so I think the future is we are we actually already have some of these tools, as I said, that and then they're they're free uh, for the most part that that can help allow students to learn at their own time and pace. The power happens because it unlocks the classroom to be more interactive and to really lean on what humans can do when they're around each other. Now, I do think there's going to be use cases when you're in rural Alaska or you're in some place where you don't have access to a good school or the school that you have, you know, doesn't have certain courses then online can still surround you with high quality, rigorous learning. It's not optimal. You would want that in conjunction with in-person, but if you don't have great in-person, it can at least be a bit of a safety net. Now, I wanted to ask you about this famous expression, the flipped classroom, which you're quite famous for, the idea that lectures and sort of information delivery can happen at home uh, rather than in the classroom. And then you do the sort of problem solving and homework in the classroom instead of at home. I understand your position on this has evolved somewhat. So what's going on there? Yeah, this, you know, my association with the term flipped classroom came, I gave a TED talk in 2010. And halfway through the TED talk, I point out this wasn't like the conclusion of the talk, halfway through the talk, I talked about how I was making all of this content for my cousins, uh, these math and science videos and practice. And then I got started getting letters from teachers saying, hey, you know, you already gave a good explanation of photosynthesis, or how do you factor a quadratic or whatever it might be. So these teachers were saying that they were telling their students to watch the content at their own time and pace. And that way, when they got into class, they were able to do more problem solving. And it made a lot of sense because the problem solving what's traditionally homework is actually where you need more help. You need more feedback. You need more support. And now you're in a a human environment with other people. You're not alone in your bedroom. You're around other people, the teachers there, even your peers can help you do it. So that's not a bad idea. I think that's actually a really good idea uh, to think about when human beings are together, let's make that more interactive. Uh, Let's do the actual active learning versus the passive learning, so to speak. But I would say, you know, the reason why I, I, I say I don't want to be strongly associated with is I say go further because what makes classrooms have to move lockstep was the notion of classrooms as information delivery. And when you use a lecture as the information delivery mechanism, well, I can only give one lecture to 30 students, so we're all going to move lockstep together and then we're going to do the home, same homework that night. But if all of a sudden students can get practice and instruction and little explanations and worked examples at their own time and pace, it completely unlocks what can happen in the classroom where every student can start to progress and master concepts at the, at the right pace. And then when you go into the classroom, the teacher and peer students can help unlock students. But then you can also do games, simulations, Socratic dialogue, all of the things that we know uh, really leverage the human to human connection. And, and you, you can't do with technology. So it's your argument, Sal, is that the flipped classroom is sort of a... Um that, that it lacks ambition in some way, that, that a more fully personalized experience would meet. Yeah. It, you know, the flip classroom is a cool idea because at least it breaks people's idea of what traditionally happens in the classroom versus at home. But as soon as you start thinking from first principles, you're like, well, you should just do whatever makes sense wherever you happen to be, whether you're on the school bus, whether you're in the classroom, whether you're with your parents, you should just do what makes sense. And then we should have the human beings around you also do what makes sense. Brilliant. What aspect of the future of education are you most excited about and what are you most worried about? Let's start with you, Mark. Well, I'm excited about the enormous potential, the enormous improvements that could come from improving even a little bit schooling in the poor world. In a lot of low-income countries, schooling is absolutely woeful. And we've been making huge strides for years in getting more children into classrooms. And we've 
gradually begun to realise that many of these children are learning next to nothing even when they spend years behind their desks. And finding ways to improve that, even through, well, through tech, but perhaps through other means, uh, I think could have huge benefits that we are only really just beginning to anticipate. What am I worried about? I mean, I have a worry about EdTech that is slightly different from the scenario that we've laid out, and that is that the better off kids, the richer kids, are going to have a more blended experience with more teachers around, that they're going to benefit not just from having technology, but from having uh, really good teachers around to, to help them out. And that uh, actually, if adaptive learning just becomes an excuse to cut costs, uh, to fill schools with uh, computers, uh, and not to build the structures that you need to really create good coaching, mentoring, personalized learning, then I think there's a chance it's going to make uh, education an awful lot worse. Sal, what's your view? What are you most optimistic about and most worried about? I'm optimistic. You know, the world today is fairly unequal. Families that are upper middle income or middle income or affluent, they get to surround their students with resources after school during summers that essentially allow them to do mastery learning. If, if you come from an affluent family and you are currently at an 80% on some concept, they might hire a tutor or there, there might be someone in the family who can help you out and has the time to help you out. While if you're lower middle class or you live in poverty, too bad. And that that's even putting aside all of the inequities that might happen at school and uh, your, who's your teacher and the types of facilities. We want to have 10% of American students at least, and we want to focus on kids from historically under-resourced communities, be able to learn 50% more per year than they normally otherwise would have within the next five years. So this isn't 2042. We're talking about mainstream being able to really move the dial at the scale of nations sooner than later. I think the fears are just building the tools will not be enough. We're going to have to change the model of how it happens in the classroom. Uh, what happens at the grade book? Can we move to a competency mastery-based learning so that if you get a C, but then you go and, and learn it better, you can move that to an A. Are there ways to blur between high school and college? We're doing pilots where students get mastery on, on Khan Academy. They get their college credits as part of that. So that I'm very optimistic about. The stuff I'm worried about is, is there going to be so much inertia in the system that we're, we're not going to be able to make the, the full changes that we need to? Mark Johnson and Sal Khan, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Next week on The World Ahead, I'll be considering the future of climate technology and imagining the world's first carbon-negative airline. Is it as green as it looks? For more insights into the future and the present, you can take out a subscription to The Economist at economist.com slash podcast offer. Thanks to Laurence Bouvard for the voice of the head of the school board, Tom Pooley is the producer and Sandra Schmueli is the executive producer. The World Ahead was a Tempo and Talker production. I'm Tom Standage, and in London, in 2022, this is The Economist.